I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true and international under pressure. True and international under pressure. Truman and Shaman of Russia, pushing down on me, pushing down on you. Now you can own all of Joe Biden's greatest hits in one place with the new Biden Bops collection. I wanna fly like Jimmy Go to the sea. Fly like Jimmy Go. Why should voters need IDs? If you won't vote for me, then you ain't black. My dude, I can smell it coming from your hair tonight. Oh boy. You may cut me, man, but you'll never cut me again. Cause the pool god just cut me up a six foot length of chain. Three oh three three oh three oh three. Three oh three three oh three oh three. I'm gonna sniff you up, they'll only let you down. Out, out, let them all out. We need these rioters running about. Come on, man. We got corn popping here. Get off the diving board. Uh-huh. Pulled out in September. Uh-huh. Our allies are surrendered. You know the thing. All endowed with you know the thing. Order now and we'll throw in Jen Saki's greatest hits collection. You let me get around to that I asked by the way he gets back But I ain't no circle back girl I ain't no circle back girl Hey folks, thank you so much for watching. Please like, share, subscribe, comment below. This one's probably going to be hard to monetize because of all the music. So if you want to help us make more, please donate at patreon.com slash freedom Thank you so much. And now... America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's and green perhaps earth. the most important, the most crucial of all of the lies to rebut about the Vietnam Syndrome and this sense of reliving those same old tired debates again and again is the lie that you've heard so many times that America is an imperialist power, and the Vietnam War proves it, that it was an unconstitutional war that was actually based on a desire for American dominance. Now, the best way to get to the bottom of that first of the three big Vietnam lies is to actually make clear that the Vietnam War wasn't a separate war. Talking about the Vietnam War as a separate war is like talking about Gettysburg like a separate battle as if Gettysburg and Antietam and uh, the Battle of Cold Harbor were all separate wars, somehow, rather than just battles in one larger struggle. Well, Vietnam was just one battle in a much larger struggle. It was a struggle that ranged between 1946 and 1989. It has been called by some people, like Norman Podhoretz, World War III, and in many ways it was World War III. It's also been called the Cold War. Now, the Cold War was a war that pitted the forces of Soviet and international communism against the United States. Initially, the United States was the only country with enough power to try to resist the advances of Stalinism and communism. But eventually, of course, we were joined by our European allies after they were stabilized and by other free countries on Earth. But people today look back on this war as if it weren't serious. But for goodness sake, try to put yourself in the position of President Truman after World War II. This unbelievable cataclysm with so much carnage and so many deaths all around the world. And then immediately after World War II, after ridding the world of the danger of Nazism and ridding the world of the danger of Hitlerism, solving Hitlerism the only way you definitively solve evil, which is through destroying it, after that, all of a sudden you face a brand new evil. And it's the evil of international communism. It's an evil that very conservatively has been estimated by scholars who compiled what's called communism's black book to have claimed more than a hundred million victims, more than Nazism, during the 20th century. And many of those victims, most of those victims, 
actually met their graves, entered their graves after World War II. I mean, the carnage is staggering, because after World War II, not only did the Soviet Union impose its iron heel on all of Eastern Europe, running down from Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania all the way down. They tried in a very bloody civil war to take over Greece. They were resisted by the United States. They conquered and dominated Poland, East Germany. Germany was partitioned, and this is very, very important. People forget, because now we have a united Germany again, but it looked very permanent. Germany had been broken apart on armistice lines. One half of Germany, actually it was much more than one half, it was more like two-thirds of Germany was under Western control and became a free country and a democratic country. And about a third of the old country of Germany remained East Germany, totally dominated by the old Soviet Union and what was called a satellite power. And this was true throughout Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, Albania, which was under largely Chinese control. But all of these countries had been falling under the communist under the communist domination and basically the united states seemed to be powerless to try to stop the advances of communism the most disastrous advance involved the fall of china with a chinese civil war in 1949 mao Zedong taking over the most populous country on earth what did that have to do with vietnam and the lies about vietnam everything which we'll explain when we come back how many roads must a man walk down? The first big lie about the Vietnam War and about the Vietnam era that needs to be corrected is the one that says that America got into the war because America was an imperialist power. The best way to understand why that is a lie, why it's also a lie to say that the war was unconstitutional, is to understand that the Vietnam War is more properly understood as the Vietnam Battle. It was part of a much longer war, a war that went on uh, for more than 40 years. It's a war that went on for 43 years before America finally won. It was called the Cold War, and it was a struggle against international communism, which was indeed, as President Reagan rightly pointed out, an evil empire. And that evil empire was bent on world domination. The United States was very eager to demobilize after World War II. Our troops came home, so many of them had been drafted, and uh, we basically cut back, cut way back on our military, and then all of a sudden we found ourselves facing this challenge by the Soviet Union and its leader, Joe Stalin. And Stalin actually had a, a great deal to say about the importance of the kind of challenge in, in which he was engaged. He saw that part of what the Soviet Union was doing by advancing its interests all around the world was probing, testing. And this is something that Stalin said to one of his Chinese colleagues, Zhou Enlai, who for years was number two man to Mao in communist China. Stalin wrote to him on August 20th, 1952, in the middle of the Korean War. He said, Americans are merchants. Germans conquered France in just 20 days. It's been already two years, and America has still not subdued little Korea. No Americans don't know how to fight. After the Korean War in particular, they have lost the capability to wage a large-scale war. They are fighting little Korea, and already people are weeping in the USA. What will happen if they start a large-scale war? Then perhaps everyone there will weep. There was an assumption that the United States was a paper tiger, could not really defend its interests. And that, of course, was partially an assumption that was drawn because the United States uh, had allowed Stalin and the communists to triumph absolutely in communist China. And a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, China and Mao and uh, Stalin, well, one was Russian, one was Chinese, and these were two rival world powers. Not originally. There was no question at all that originally the Maoists and the communists in China were Stalinist puppets. They were totally controlled by, funded by, supported by the Russian communists, and they beat the American proxy run by uh, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek and forced the Americans to retreat to Taiwan. And there they created a nationalist government that America has protected until the present day. But part of the results of the loss of China in 1949 and 1950 in the consolidation of Mao's rule aside from the fact that with his great leap, great leap forward about 10 years later 
He uh, caused the death of some 30 million Chinese. I mean, some of the most unbelievable suffering of the last century. Despite all of that suffering and despite the re-education camps and despite the self-criticism sessions and the tyranny of the Chinese communist regime, they, um, they weren't satisfied with just taking control of the world's most populous nation. There was also a desire to extend the Chinese empire and to extend the sway and the reach of communism. And one of the first places that the Chinese communists, very much with Stalin's support and under Stalin's direction, probed first was against Korea. Right after they had come to power in Beijing, the North Koreans, the client state of the Chinese, invaded South Korea. Korea had been occupied, had been part of the Japanese Empire. When the Japanese retreated, it was partitioned, and half of the country was a power friendly to the U.S., uh, run by a dictator named Syngman Rhee, but somebody who allowed at least some economic freedom and then eventually evolved into the democratic state of South Korea that we see today. But North Korea didn't accept that. The communists didn't accept that. They had a massive invasion. And then, to everyone's surprise, the United States, with the U.N. support, because the Russians decided not to veto it, they actually boycotted the U.N. session foolishly involving the Korean War, the United States came roaring back under General MacArthur, and we fought this long, horribly bloody war, which by the right calculation, some people say the Korean War killed 38,000 Americans. Actually, the right number, if you look at the casualty figures, 56,000 Americans died in Korea. It was a horrendous and bloody conflict. And yet America fought that conflict because it was considered that if you allowed the Chinese and their Korean allies, their Korean proxies, to move forward in Korea, then the momentum of history, the message to the whole world, would be very much as Stalin said, that America was not willing to fight, that America was not able to fight, that we basically would abandon the field and would allow the communists to take over anywhere. And, of course, the real prize was Europe, because at this time there was a very real chance of a communist takeover in France, communist takeover in Italy, in many of the countries in Europe that later became allied with the United States. And, of course, there was always the threat of the Russians with their enormous land armies, much bigger than ours, roaring forward to take over the rest of Germany, to take over Western Germany that we were protecting. So the message was very clear, and everyone in American politics came to understand it. The message was what was called containment, that the United States simply could not allow a, a monstrous tyranny under the command of Joseph Stalin to move forward and to take over other countries. But there was another front in this war with the communists, and that front was in Indochina. Now, in the same way that Japan had withdrawn from Korea, creating the instability at the end of World War II that led to the Korean War that eventually came out as a stalemate, when Eisenhower was elected president, he came in, he threatened, uh, it now is very clear from some of the declassified information, he threatened a potential nuclear strike in uh, Korea if they didn't uh, actually agree. And we also maintained a permanent troop presence in South Korea to prevent the Chinese and to prevent the North Koreans from attacking ever again. But there was another nation that uh, also involved a communist insurgency, and it was again a communist insurgency directly controlled by Mao and by Stalin. And in fact, Ho Chi Minh, the leader of that insurgency in Indochina, was far from a good guy nationalist leader. He was someone who had met personally with Stalin and with Mao in Moscow in the winter of 1950. And now he was getting ready to, quote, liberate his country, take it over for the world communist empire way back in 1954. What would the United States do? Well, what the United States did and didn't do had fateful consequences that helped to expose one of those three big lies about the Vietnam War. And the first of those big lies is the one that says that the Vietnam War was a reflection of U.S. imperialism, some kind of U.S. desire to dominate the whole world, and that it was an unconstitutional war. You need to understand the background to how the U.S. made a commitment and to the fact that it was not just one party or one president or one cabinet or a few advisors. This was something that everyone in American political life agreed to be important. After the French were driven out of Indochina, 
and Ho Chi Minh had the leading army on the ground. The, uh, the Geneva Accords, which were agreed to by all of the world's powers and were basically validated by the United Nations, the Geneva Accords said, okay, we're going to divide this country up between the pro-communist North and the pro-Western South, and then by 1956 we'll have elections and the country can be united. Well, there was one problem with those elections. And a lot of people have said, why didn't the U.S. just allow the elections to happen? And it's true, the U.S. blocked those elections. Why? Is that a reflection of U.S. imperialism, the fact that we didn't trust democracy? No, it's the fact that we didn't trust communism. Because there were two reasons that the communists would have definitely won the elections in 56. Reason number one was the North, under communist dominion, had a bigger population than the South, which was a pro-Western enclave in Vietnam. But reason number two is that in North Vietnam, under Ho Chi Minh, after he set up shop, there was absolutely no freedom of any kind, no free votes of any kind. In fact, according now to declassified information, we have Soviet files and other files, they murdered, summarily murdered, as soon as they took over, a minimum of 10,000 people, most people say over 100,000 people, just for the crime of opposing the communists. So if you have a larger part of the country in the north anyway, and that part of the country has no freedom at all, and they're going to produce it like virtually a 100% vote for the communists, obviously if you allow a, uh, a nationwide election, when they have allowed no freedom at all, and no free elections, and no free expression, and no opposition in the north, then the election is a farce, and it's a disaster. Which is why the United States and everyone in the United States, not just the Eisenhower administration, was determined not to allow that election to happen unless there was some progress in the North to guaranteeing normal democratic processes. Now, this was not just something that President Eisenhower had done. In fact, Eisenhower had been under a lot of pressure from uh, some hawks in his own party and in the Democratic Party to actually send troops to help rescue the French. The United States paid 80% of the costs for the French to try to fight against the Viet Ninh, against the communists. That hadn't worked. Now we were faced with all kinds of new challenges. And it's fascinating to go back and to look at a speech that was given by a very dynamic young senator, a Democrat, in 1956. And this is what he said. That senator from Massachusetts said that Vietnam represents the cornerstone of the free world in Southeast Asia, the keystone to the arch, the finger in the dike. Burma, Thailand, India, Japan, the Philippines, and obviously Laos and Cambodia would be threatened if the red tide of communism overflowed into Vietnam. This is why Senator John F. Kennedy, future president, said that in 1956, when he was still a member of the U.S. Senate, that... Uh, that America's stake in Vietnam was a proving ground for democracy in Asia, the alternative to communist dictatorship. If this democratic experience fails, Senator Kennedy said, if some one million refugees have fled the totalitarianism of the North only to find neither freedom nor security in the South, then weakness, not strength, will characterize the meaning of democracy in the minds of still more Asians. It is an experiment we cannot afford to permit to fail. Now, what John Kennedy was saying was absolutely true. After the North Vietnamese began their killing campaign, over one million people in the North moved to the south of Vietnam, voted with their feet, tried to flee the communist tyranny, and found refuge in the south. Now, the south wasn't a garden spot either. The dictator of the south, Diem, uh, he wasn't fully a dictator. He was still consolidating his power. He threw out the old emperor, Bao Dai, who had been tainted with association with the Japanese. And he began to try to set up his authoritarian, not totalitarian, authoritarian pro-Western regime. And the Eisenhower administration was absolutely committed uh, to defend it because it was very clearly in the U.S. interest to do so. As a matter of fact, the vice president of the United States, whose name was Nixon, said that, uh, I am convinced that unless the communists knew that their so-called wars of liberation would be resisted by military means if necessary, they would not stop until they had taken over Southeast Asia, just as they had all of Eastern Europe. And Eisenhower himself, in what later became 
one of the most famous, in fact, notorious images about America's involvement in Vietnam, said it was necessary to stop the fall of Indochina to communism because, quote, you have a row of dominoes set up. You knock over the first one, and what will happen to the last one is the certainty that it will go over very quickly. There was virtual unanimity from all segments of the American political class, in the Eisenhower administration, in the Kennedy administration, in the Johnson administration, that Vietnam needed to be defended against communist aggression and subversion. In fact, Robert Kennedy, later an anti-war candidate, went to Saigon when he was attorney general for his brother, President John F. Kennedy. And he went to Saigon in 1962, and here's what he said. Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, said, we're going to win in Vietnam, and he said, we will remain here until we do win. This was bipartisan. It was virtually unanimous. And there was no need to, quote, trick people or to fool people or in some way to, uh, to try to alter the political balance because the political consensus was so strong. Stanley Carnot, very much a liberal, has uh, said, and I think very clearly and very well, in his history of Vietnam, that uh, accordingly the United States didn't stumble into the Vietnam quagmire blindly, nor was it propelled toward the conflict by a cabal of warmongers of the White House, the Pentagon, the State Department, or the CIA in, collabor in collaboration with Wall Street and corporate America. Legions of civilian and military bureaucrats went through a slow, cumbersome, often agonizing process as they studied dra data and drafted plans and options. We'll talk about those plans coming up. Why were we in Vietnam? Was it a reflection of American imperialism? That's one of the big lies about the Vietnam War. Stanley Carnot, the leading liberal historian of that war, the author of Vietnam History, says the decisions to go to war reflected the view of most Americans that they could not shirk their responsibility as global custodian. We were fighting a battle to the death, a battle against our way of life, a battle against our liberties, against our freedom, against the whole concept of America, a battle with a very formidable, very implacable foe, world communism. And they were probing and testing us everywhere. And one of the places was Vietnam. And future presidents, Richard Nixon, John Kennedy, President Kennedy's brother, future anti-war candidate Bobby Kennedy, everyone agreed that Vietnam was crucial, that this was a place that the United States had to make a stand. Was that based upon natural resources, some desire to steal their oil? You know what? They did discover oil off the shores of Vietnam at the very middle of the Vietnam War. But we now know, because of all kinds of declassified information, the government had no idea the oil was there. And even if they had, at that time when there was no OPEC, when oil was still available for two bucks a barrel from uh, the Middle East, there's no chance we would have gone to war for oil in Vietnam. That's a ridiculous assertion. The other ridiculous assertion, that the war was unconstitutional. Michael Lind, who is kind of a centrist-leaning liberal writer, wrote maybe the best single book on the Vietnam War, recent book. It's called Vietnam, the Necessary War. And he makes the point that the Vietnam War was not an undeclared war because the Southeast Asia Resolution, otherwise known as the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, was a legitimate conditional declaration of war. Nor was any senator or representative tricked into voting for it because everyone knew that the purpose of the resolution was to enable the president to increase U.S. military efforts to prevent the forcible incorporation of South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia into the communist bloc. How did they know that? How can he say that? Listen to the language of the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. It was adopted unanimously by the House of Representatives in 1964, August 7th, and with only two dissenting votes in the U.S. Senate, 98 to 2. The Congress resolved by the House and uh, Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America and Congress assembled that the Congress approves and supports the determination of the President as Commander-in-Chief to take all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent further aggression. The United States regards as vital to its national interest and to world peace the maintenance of international peace and security in Southeast Asia. The United States is therefore prepared, as the President determines, to take all necessary steps, including the use of armed force to assist any member or protocol state of the Southeast Asia Collective Defense Treaty requesting assistance in defense of its freedom. 
Yes, there were false reports about the North Vietnamese attacking innocent American shipping. They were actually disrupting or attacking covert operations in which we were engaged. But Congress voted to authorize virtually unlimited war. The war was not unconstitutional, nor was it imperialistic. But there are other lies that need to be rebutted about the Vietnam War, upward and onward. Welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. A lot of Americans think, quote, we lost. And what you point out is to the extent that there is the, the army, the U.S. troops won. You bet they did. Yeah. No, and, no. The, and along with the South Vietnamese. And the South Vietnamese. Yeah. And, and then, and that's what you write, it's a short, powerful book. So why don't you give us... Uh, 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 people don't know. So just a couple of facts. Give mm -hmm. us an outline of what happened. On January the 23rd of 1973, the president gave a speech that we had... Well, the president we're talking was about... Nixon. Okay, go on. That, uh, that, the, that that day, they had initialed the Paris Peace Accords. They would sign it in four days. What it meant was that we had achieved... We had won everything that Presidents Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon were all presidents during this war. And we had won everything that those four presidents had, had, uh, had, had uh, administered. And the agreement was absolutely magnificent. It was called a ceasefire, but it was so much more than a ceasefire. It was a guarantee that the South Vietnamese would have free and fair elections. The North Vietnamese signed it. The Viet Cong signed it. That, uh, that they would have the freedoms that we enjoyed. And what we did was plagiarized our First Amendment and added every blessed freedom that you can think of. We added freedom of residence, freedom of private property, freedom of private enterprise, everything that you could think of. We had about a dozen freedoms itemized that they would have guaranteed. Viet Cong signed it. North Vietnamese signed it. Uh, we, uh, uh, we, we then uh, uh, said our prisoners will come home. They signed it. And, they, and indeed, the prisoners did come home. They thought what was true, that we had won the war. And we even got that from their memoirs later on. But there was one thing, because we weren't naive enough to think that the North Vietnamese uh, would not violate the treaty. We knew that they very likely would. We made... In, uh, in one of the articles of the Paris Peace Accords, the agreement that we would furnish on a piece-by-piece -piece basis anything that the South Vietnamese lost. Uh, Soviet Union could do it with, uh, with uh, the North Vietnamese if they wanted to. In other words, if you lost a bullet, you'd get a bullet from the U.S. If you lost a helicopter, you'd get a helicopter. So that if there was any aggression from North Vietnam, South Vietnam would be, remain in the same position that they were already in. The Congress saw that as their entry into this and to turn the victory into defeat. It took two and a quarter years, but the Congress did it. They wanted us to, to be defeated. And when I say that, I say that not as a theory or not as a belief, but as a fact. Certainly not everyone in the Congress, but the majority of the Congress did. They had an investment in our failure. They had said from the outset, we, sh we should never be in this thing. We should get out of this thing. Just leave it. Nothing will happen. Uh, there isn't going to be any bloodbath, nothing, none of that. Just get out. They had an investment in failure. They used to speak to the demonstrators in D.C. Uh, on, on, the, on the mall whenever there was a giant demonstration. All right. Are you saying then that in 1973, with the signing of the mm -hmm. Paris Peace Accords, mm -hmm. there were two unhappy parties. Yeah, there were more than two. Well, all right. But the two that I'm thinking of are uh, putting Viet Cong and North Vietnam into one, okay. and the other being the left in the United States. Yes, the left, yes. The demonstrators, university professors, and the, the Democratic major, Party. The, the major media, and the Democratic Party. Okay, we'll be back in a moment with Bruce Hershenson. I'm Dennis Prager. One of the most distinguished Americans alive, in my opinion, in fact, received the Distinguished Service Medal, 
an American amnesia, terrifically titled about Vietnam. It's a very brief book. It is perfectly readable. It is up at DennisPrager.com. It is one of the books that I always say I want to memorize. I want to just have all those facts at my fingertips. When I speak about the damage that the left has done in history and in the last 100, 150 years now, uh, this is a this is one of the examples that, that nobody acknowledges or few people acknowledge. We had, in effect, would you say a, a North, a communist surrender in Vietnam in 73? Yes, except that it wasn't written that way. It was written as a ceasefire, but with all those stipulations. They certainly regarded it as a surrender. And if you read some of the memoirs that they wrote, talk to some of the prisoners of war, the American prisoners of war, who had guards who confirmed to them that they knew that they lost. Yep. And, uh, and as, I, as I mentioned... The Congress was not pleased about it. There wasn't a great celebration in D.C. other than in the White House and the Department of Defense. We called it VV Day, Victory in Vietnam, like VE Day and VJ Day. But the Congress certainly did not. And then there was an election three months uh, 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 three months after the uh, President Nixon uh, left office. There was a congressional election. A landslide for the Democrats, just a landslide. They took over. It was the 94th Congress, and immediately they set out to do exactly that, say, no, we will not abide by the Paris Peace Accords. We will not give the uh, resupply the South Vietnamese if they lose anything. And so they were tested. They were tested by the North Vietnamese. They started in one little town and then another little village, saw and would see if we... Uh, resupplied the South Vietnamese. We did not. And so they took a real large area, Quan Long, and took it. We did nothing. And then they knew they could have a real offensive, go into Saigon, take it. They did. Now, this was now during President Ford's administration. He pleaded with them for us to keep our word and the, many of the members of the Congress walked out. This was a primetime speech. It was April the 10th of 1975. Uh, and he pleaded that there were, Cambodia would surrender and South Vietnam would surrender unless we keep our word. Many of the, as I remember, many of the members walked out. S- seven days later, April the 17th, Cambodia surrendered. After that, April the 30th, Saigon surrendered. South Vietnam surrendered. When Saigon surrendered, and Cambodia already had uh, surrendered 13 days earlier, Senator Fulbright summed up the feeling of the 94th Congress. He said, I am no more distressed than I would be if Arkansas lost a football game to Texas. He was a senator from Arkansas. Head of the Foreign Relations Committee. Yeah. And, and that started the Southeast Asian genocide. You're talking about more than two million, about uh, one quarter of the people of uh, Cambodia dead. You're talking about about a million boat people from South Vietnam. They had no other way to get out of the place. 500,000 of them are still underneath the South China Sea. Drowning and sharky. And you don't hear any of those people who are in that Congress apologize that they were wrong. Well, you know my, my statement, Bruce. Being on the left means never having to say you're sorry. You said it. You said it. Now, I will say there's been some marvelous people who have said they were sorry about what they advocated during those days. John Voigt is one of them. Uh, uh, David Horowitz is another. Uh, there are those, and I, I, I do uh, uh, I, I put them in the book because they're, I think that's marvelous. They realize they did the wrong thing. They're devoting their lives to the liberty of other people now. It's such a painful chapter. I, I sure is. The I'll tell you, there is. Everybody listening knows how proud I am to be an American. That doesn't mean that every moment, any more than any parent, there are, there are times in a child's life you're not proud of your child, so the, or proud of a parent even all the time. But I, I have to say, the videos of our allies trying to get on the last helicopter leaving Saigon. 
they hurt me as an American. That you bet. Lake Balboa, California. It's Gary. Hello, Gary. Hi, Dennis. Hi. I'm Bruce. Hi, Gary. Your book for about three months. Really? And I and I am only halfway through it. I find it so painful to read. It makes me so ashamed of my country. Oh, don't be ashamed of your country. Be, be, be ashamed of because there's no place else to go. Well, there's no country better. You bet there's no country better. And don't be ashamed of the country. Uh, be ashamed of those members of the Congress that the people voted for and allowed this to happen. And uh, to this day, I have met very few people who remember that these things happened. And th th that's really why I make a point of it. It is an amnesia. It it it's, it's a serious one. I understand how kids don't know it. Because most of their professors aren't going to tell them about it, and uh, but I don't understand how those people who who were living at the time, who were mature at the time, who knew what was happening at the time, uh, can allow this to go on. Well, you know, you, if you raise this, and thank you, Gary. The the the, the, the Thanks, point Gary. is to be ashamed of the left. All right, well, I mean, let's call aware. It's not the country; it's the left. The the left controlled the media. Uh, the left told the narrative. Yeah, and, and because they control the narrative, they control the way people perceive what happens. He who controls media controls history, uh, but not forever, and not where there's talk radio, and not where there's Fox News, and not where there's a Wall Street Journal, and not where there's a Bruce Hershenson. That's the point. And that's why we, uh, we annoy them terribly, because then they can't monopolize the narrative. So that's if, if one is going to talk about being ashamed. Their answer when you ra when I raise this issue with folks on the left uh, is, well, what did you want us to do? Bomb Hanoi? I mean, you know, uh, you know, we tried everything and we still didn't win. But they don't answer the question. We did win. They you know how we did it by bombing Hanoi and Haiphong. Yeah, well, that's they, how we did. Well, it. they say, well, how much more did you want to? No. They, they don't know this. I'm telling you, I think that that's 90% what, of the people on the left don't know this. That's what brought them to the table. And at the time we were bombing, the New York Times called the president a maddened tyrant. The Washington Post said that uh, the Americans questioned his sanity. Uh, and, however, it brought them to the Paris Peace Accords and they signed them with yeah. that guarantee that we... That Why didn't we they say a question Churchill's sanity on bombing Germany? Back of in a course. moment. Bruce and I have very similar views. We, we truly believe in America. We, it's the last best hope for mankind. We, is that fair to say? I mean, we're just totally in sync on, on. There's no question about it. And if anything should happen to the United States, I think that civilization as a whole uh, would be would decline to centuries and centuries and centuries ago, because we are the hope. We are the only nation in the world, the only nation that has had the power and the will to spend our lives mm -hmm. for the liberty of others, of strangers. That's right. It's as simple as that. Who knew the Koreans or the and, Vietnamese? And the, and the left portrays it as imperialism. I know they do. It's truly vile. It is. You know, I learned <laughs> when I was a little kid when the Marshall Plan came. My God. Usually people who win wars can make the other yes, side yes. the taxpayer for life. Yes. They're going to tax. They'll pay all of our ta taxes. Right. We did the opposite. We, uh, the American taxpayer, paid to rebuild and to bring liberty to those places that didn't have it. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. Well, Churchill called us the most generous nation in the world. Uh, and, and then since that time... We have done so much for so many others. No, no country has ever done what we have done. All right, let's go to some of your calls. Let's go to uh, Newport Beach, California. Rich, hello, Rich. You're on with Bruce Hershenson and me, Dennis Prager. Thank you for taking my call, Dennis. I just wanted to get uh, Bruce's take on why they continue to call it a war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, just my take is, you know, we, we won the war. I mean, Saddam Hussein and the Taliban were absolutely 100% defeated, and it seems like they're kind of setting us up in the media and the, the storytelling of it, as you will, uh, for failure by still continuing to call it a war, because if we, when we finally do leave, they could immediately say that's a loss. 
Uh, no, I have to disagree with you on that. In fact, I don't even call it two wars. I call it one. It is the war against radical Islamic terrorism. There are theaters in this war, just like there was the Pacific Theater in World War II and there is the European Theater. There are theaters in it. Uh, one of them would be the Asian the uh, uh, Theater of uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. The other would be Iraq. It's entirely possible that it's going to be Yemen or it's going to be Iran. But it is one war, and it is the war against radical Islamic terrorism. And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. Green earth, and yes, it is a great day, despite the fact that we are coming up to a very, very dark anniversary. In fact, the 30th anniversary of one of the darkest days in all of American history. Now, what day would I be talking about that is such a dark day? The um, election of Jimmy Carter as president? No, as bad as that was, this is even worse than that. It's a dark day 30 years ago, this Friday, because it's a day that marked America's only defeat in uh, a war. And it was a defeat that did not need to happen. It was a defeat that was the result of lousy policy and horrible political leadership. That's uh, one of the themes of a tremendously important new book. The anniversary that I'm talking about is the anniversary of the fall of Saigon. And I know there are lots of people who are listening today who are too young to remember what happened 30 years ago. But anyone who was conscious at that time uh, will remember extraordinarily well uh, what, uh, what the experience was like with the the um, did I say 30 years? It's 35 years ago. It's 1975, and I need to get that very clear uh, because the images are clear and indelible. Images of um, desperate people trying to grab hold of helicopters that are leaving the roofs of the American embassy. Images of fleeing refugees in the face of unimaginable brutality. Images of America disgraced full of broken promises and blighted hopes. There is a new book that sets the record straight about what happened, what went right, what went wrong. Yes, there were things that went right about the Vietnam War. It is called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Vietnam War. It is written by someone who helped to fight that war. His name is Philip Jennings. He was a captain in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, captain Jennings, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Michael. And congratulations on the book. If you were to try to isolate all of the, the the truly dangerous misconceptions about this war that really ended, it ended 35 years ago. It ended not with the withdrawal of American combat troops, but with uh, America's abandonment of our allies. If you were to try to isolate the biggest myth, the most dangerous misunderstanding, the most dangerous lie that that people believe about the war in which you fought, what would it be? Well, I give it a lot of thought, actually. I think probably uh, the myth that it was a civil war that the United States had no business being in the middle of. Because if you don't believe we had any legal right, any ethical right, any moral right to be there, then discussions about the war really don't make a lot of sense. But the fact of the matter is it wasn't a civil war. It was a war of aggression by the North Vietnamese. Uh, they were also attacking Laos at the same time. They are always attacking Cambodia at the same time. It seems to be hard to make an argument that this was a civil war in which we had North Vietnamese troops, up to 40,000 in Laos, up to 300,000 in Cambodia sometime. Somehow that was supposed to be part of a civil war in southern Vietnam. I didn't believe it then, don't believe it now. And I think if you, you just have to look at history and, and, and see uh, why that's such a myth and why it's such a lie uh, to then start to talk about why we were there, how we were there, what we did. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. If you disagree with um, uh, Philip Jennings, who fought in the war, who believes that it was a righteous cause and a noble cause, that American troops performed heroically and then were betrayed years later by their political leadership, if you disagree with that analysis, you can give us a call, 1-800-955-1776. This point about it being a civil war, one of the points that, that I would make about that 
is that Saddam Hussein, uh, may he rot in hell, uh, also claimed that his invasion of Kuwait was a civil war. Remember, he claimed that Kuwait really was a province that belonged to Iraq, and yet President George Herbert Walker Bush had the courage and I believe the correct vision to say, wait a minute, you cannot allow one nation to massively attack another uh, and, and to believe that there is going to be anything like stability in the world. This was especially true in Vietnam because we were in the midst, as you make very clear in your book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Vietnam War. It's posted up at our website at michaelmedved.com. As you make very clear, it's impossible to consider the Vietnam War as a separate conflict except as part of the larger conflict against international communism. Explain. Well, you're absolutely right. In fact, I make the point, sometimes there's a danger in oversimplifying, but some of the arguments I get into, I have to get them pretty simple. If North Vietnamese, uh, if the North Vietnamese government had decided they were Nazis, would we all feel, feel the same way? That the fact that, well, they have a right to be in the South, no matter what their, uh, what their belief is, no matter how cruel they are, uh, the fact of the matter is that um, the communists, of course, at the time were actually much more brutal, uh, managed to kill a lot more people over the last uh, three, four, five decades uh, than the Nazis even did. So, yeah, I, and also most people argue a little bit about a context, so they kind of forget what the world was like in the 1950s. Uh, fresh out of Korea, uh, certainly fresh out of uh, World War II, the fresh out of Korea, which would fought the communists. The communists proved they would come across a border into another country to uh, attack uh, the South Koreans and us. And so uh, if you look at the context of things, uh, the, the thought that it was a civil war that we should be there is really just doesn't fit into that uh, context at all. Well, it, it doesn't. And, and also when you put the war in its proper context as a battle, in this larger war against uh, Stalinism, this larger war against international communism. We lost the Battle of Vietnam, but we won the war, thank God, and thank you, President Reagan, against uh, international communism. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. Have you uh, gotten any angry reactions since the release of your book, The and I'm sure you have, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the <laughs> Vietnam War? I... At 68, I'm still naive enough to think that we would have some civil discourse about the subject. It has been unbelievably vitriolic. Uh, the nicest thing I was called uh, recently was a, uh, a uh, turnip truck awful, uh, having some reference to that I just read and kind of a terminal turnip Tur truck. Turnip truck awful as in, as in o -F -F -A -L. Uh, manure? Manure. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. so, but I, I have to double back just a bit. Uh, in losing the war, I mean, part of my point of the book is I really am not trying to say we won the war. It's a provocative part for the title. But the fact of the matter is I do want people to understand that in 1973, our troops were home. Our POWs were home. There was an elected government in South Vietnam. We had a semblance of a treaty that we intended to live up to, and we left Vietnam in that way. Over the next two years, the Vietnamese, of course, North Vietnamese communists just ignored the treaty. Uh, we didn't help the South Vietnamese, and the result was the fall of uh, Saigon. Yeah, and, and, and again, for people who believe that the solution to world conflicts or negotiation, uh, there was a piece today, fine piece by Brett Stevens, about peace processes. Peace processes never work. They, they just never work because basically the only way that wars end is one side wins, one side loses. And, right. and basically the agreement that uh, Secretary Kissinger had negotiated back in 1973 was an American victory and then Absolutely. later later betrayed by the Democrats in Congress who overrode President Ford and the whole tragic story is told uh, beautifully in your book, uh, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Vietnam War. Let's go to Mark in Simi Valley, California. Mark, you're on with Philip Jennings. Hello, Mr. Je Mr. Jennings. Uh, thanks for your service. Um, I'm having a real hard time uh, reconciling the fact that Vietnam is a, a communist nation, as we speak. 50,000 of our best and brightest went there in the 60s and 70s and died there. And what exactly did they die for if we're now we're buying T-shirts that are made in Vietnam? Thanks. Well, Michael alluded to it earlier. There's a number of answers to that, one of which is, of course, uh, uh, if you look at Southeast Asia today and try to think back of what it might have been had we not... Uh, 
uh, expended our time and our blood and, and uh, money in Southeast Asia. It would be worse, much worse seen. The fact of the matter is, uh, after Vietnam, uh, Indonesia, Thailand, uh, Malaysia, New Zealand, Australia, uh, weren't threatened now by a, a communist force coming down and taking over that part of the world. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is that, and one of the things I try to uh, tell people is that you can still feel good about uh, sacrifice, uh, even if you're, uh, the end result isn't what you'd hoped. Uh, I went over uh, primarily because uh, I believed in America. I believed what Kennedy said in his inauguration speech. I believed in the Marine Corps. I believed in our, our uh, obligation to help other people uh, have what we had in America. And so even with the result uh, that happened, uh, I, I don't feel bad about it. I feel bad about my friends that died. It's unfortunate. But um, I don't think we have to be uh, ashamed or, or feel bad of, the, of, of what we tried to do and what happened. What about when we come back with the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Vietnam War, what about John Kerry's charge right after he came home that all Americans who served in Vietnam were baby killers and committers of atrocities? Uh, Was that your experience, Captain Jennings? We will hear from Philip Jennings, the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Vietnam War, coming up. 1-800-955-1776. Michael Medved. Twenty-one minutes after the hour on the Michael Medved Show, your daily dose of debate. No issue in our history has ever, ever, ever produced such contentious debate as the Vietnam War. And what's amazing is that the debate still continues, despite the fact that a lot of the history should have settled it. For instance, uh, there were people at the time of the war who suggested that American troops were John Kerry used the term like the invading armies of Genghis Khan and suggested that every single American who served in Vietnam had committed atrocities. First of all, how old were you when you uh, when you enlisted in the Marine Corps? 22, I think, when I enlisted. Yeah. You were 22 when you enlisted, and how, how long after you enlisted did you go over to Vietnam? Mm, 20 months. 20 months later. And you were in country. I know you flew for Air America right. after you were in the Marine Corps. Uh, how long were you in country total? Uh, a year in Vietnam and two years in Laos. And two years in Laos. And uh, did you personally participate in lots of atrocities that you feel <laughs> guilty about? I did not. Uh-huh. And how about your fellow Marines? I never saw any. Yeah, it's obviously a very, very bitter thing about the uh, from the veteran standpoint. Uh, there isn't any doubt. You know, there's a, a show last night on My Lai. And it's a pretty brutal show. Milai was horrible. Milai was it's horrible. Utterly exceptional, as you make clear yeah. in your book. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, that's the only thing I, I know to say about it. I mean, it just it happened. It was horrible, and it's such a big deal because it is absolutely un-American. It, it, the, it's nothing that our troops would, our officers would condone or encourage, and uh, it, there's there's hardly any ever any other statement about the other side of what happened. And and that's okay, except that you have to put it in context with the war, the fact that uh, uh, it was a brutal war. There was young guys, and um, and Milai happened. I don't think it was uh, – there was a book out not very long ago that really made the case that there was a Milai a month or a Milai a week or something like that. It's just uh, it's just horrible. Well, it's nonsensical. Gunter Louis, who's a, a an authoritative historian, he's a great historian, one of my favorites. He teaches at the University of Massachusetts. Uh, he did an 1,100-page analysis. He went over all of the military records. And uh, you know as a, um, a former Marine <laughs> military, there there are records of, right. of everything. I mean, you can't burp without it being recorded somewhere. And, and uh, the, the truth of the matter is that our troops in Vietnam uh, actually conducted themselves more honorably, more honorably, with less atrocities, with less violations of the standards of war than our troops in World War II. And what's what's amazing about that is you still have morons like Tom Hanks. And you'll pardon me, I think he's a great actor, and congratulations to him. But he was just interviewed about this uh, new TV series he did on HBO, fine TV series, called The Pacific. And he suggested that against the Japanese and against the Vietnamese, we committed all kinds of atrocities because of racism that we didn't commit against the Germans. When the actual records show that 
there actually were more incidents of atrocities against the Germans uh, during during World War II. I, I remember his statement. I, I was just so saddened by it, and I, I don't know why people do things like that. It, it is just outrageous to make those kinds of claims, and um, I don't address it uh, deeply in my book simply because there's nothing really to address. Um, all the officers and men in Vietnam uh, knew right from wrong. Uh, did they always do it? No. Uh, was it often? No. Did it happen sometimes? I'm sure it did. There's three million people that fought in Vietnam in over seven or eight, ten years, and uh, some unfortunate things happen. 1-800-955-1776. Let's go to Stan in Houston, Texas. Uh, you're on the uh, Michael Medved Show. Or actually, let's go to Bill in San Diego. Bill, you're on the Medved Show with Philip Jennings, author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Vietnam War. Hey, Michael, love your show. And, Philip, I sure appreciate your perspective. I did my time in Southeast Asia in 68. I was uh, with an anti-submarine warfare group uh, off of uh, Korea during the Pueblo incident and then off Yankee Station. You grunts taught me to fly. I have a great admiration for you. Thank you. Question. A few years ago in the proceedings, I read an article that was sort of stunning where the Joint Chiefs of Staff were um, with Lyndon Baines Johnson at the, at the White House, and he was leading them out, and he turned on them, and in the most uh, vitriolic, I guess you'd say, way, he let them know that he was really not interested in what they had to say. And I thought it, uh, I've thought through all of these things like you have and wondered about them, uh, and I thought to myself, you know, if, if they had resigned at that point just because of, of what he had said to them, I thought it might have been a great statement for the American public to understand uh, the, the divide between Lyndon Bates Johnson and the Joint Chiefs, at least. Got any comments about that? Well, the incidents in my book, as a matter of fact, uh, yeah, because I did think it was important to kind of show the attitude of the President of the United States that time toward the military. And it's just, just one of those very unfortunate things. LBJ uh, never really seemed to grasp um, the fact that he was in the middle of a war, and he had other agendas, and uh, and some of them good, civil rights, et cetera, but he didn't direct his attention uh, toward what was really happening to our troops and what he needed to do to win the war. He wasn't willing to do it. And and one of the things that, that comes across clearly here is that whatever people want to say about President Nixon, when he took over management of the war, things turned for the better. Well, absolutely. And in fact, if you ask me about the vitriolic responses, it is really interesting, Michael, that when I talk about Nixon, and I, I don't talk about pro or anti-Nixon, I just talk about Nixon, what he did, I just try to stick with what happened once he took over. He got our troops out. Uh, he forced the uh, North Vietnamese to sign a treaty, uh, got our POWs home. What, do we, what else do we ask him for? Well, and he also, the casualty rate, this is one of those things that, again, will people be reminded of reading your book, we were sustaining casualty rates in, in Iraq that, that were horrible, that uh, were more than 400 people a year. During the height of the Vietnam War, we were losing and killed in action 400 people a week, a week, a week. And President Nixon dealt with that and dealt with a, a possible political situation. And when you look back on it, at, at what the situation was in uh, 1969, January 69, when he took over, and how it had been transformed by January of 1973 when uh, the, the war was resolved by the Paris negotiations. It's an amazing change. It is an amazing change. In fact, he, I talk about that a little bit of the book because, uh, again, Nixon, um, we had a kind of unwritten agreement uh, while we were trying to solve uh, things in Paris uh, that Johnson had kind of put together. Uh, saying that we would not, the Vietnamese would agree not to attack the major cities and we would not do major bombing raids. When Nixon came in, the Vietnamese just stepped up, the communists stepped all their attacks and he simply told them, I am not going to stand by while the uh, death rate of our troops goes from 250 a week to 400 a week. And he took care of it. He, he, that's when he went into Cambodia. Yeah, and which uh, occasioned all kinds of protests on the campuses. What about those protests? Uh, we, we keep hearing that protest is patriotic. How did fighting men feel about protests while they were fighting in Vietnam? And did those protests actually help to uh, end the war? We'll get to that and more with Philip Jennings. His book, A uh, Conversation Starter and an Argument Settler. 1-800-955-1776. 
It is, because it's so well documented. It's called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Vietnam War. We'll be right back. He's Michael Medved, and he is... Reporting for duty. Michael Medved. 34 minutes after the hour on the Michael Medved Show. For folks in the Seattle area who would uh, like to learn something or engage in debate about the truth of America's most misunderstood and most controversial conflict of them all, the Vietnam War. And, And by the way, for people who weren't alive during that time, if you believe that the Iraq War was controversial, <laughs> uh, you can't compare it. I mean, there there literally were were people who died here in the United States because of terrorist actions by folks like Bill Ayers, a friend of the president's, one-time friend of the president's, uh, who were so committed to striking out against what they called the evil American power structure and undermining the American cause in Vietnam. I should say Philip Jennings, the author of the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Vietnam War, not only served in the United States Marine Corps himself, he has a son who is a second lieutenant in uh, the U.S. Marine Corps, serving right now in Afghanistan, and may he come home uh, victorious with a kind of victory that our troops in Vietnam were denied. I, I wanted to get to this question before we go back to our callers at one eight hundred nine five five seventeen seventy six about 